Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. I exhaled sharply as I lowered the revolver from my temple. Today marks the fifth anniversary of Nadia's disappearance. Hard to believe it's been that long. We had so much time left, so much life to live together. But that all came to a screeching halt half a decade ago on the day we found those stairs. Without her, I have no purpose. I've got no family, no friends. No one to keep me tethered to this world. So every year on that night that Nadia went missing... I stumble out to the spot that it happened with my six-shooter in hand, halfway drowned in a handle of vodka, and I let the forest decide if I'm going to live for another year, or if I'm going to be reunited with her, wherever she is. Now that it's determined that I have at least one more trip around the sun, I'll tell you how I ended up here at rock bottom. I need to get this out while I still have the guts to tell the story. Don't know why though, I'm going to wake up sometime tomorrow afternoon with a massive headache and no recollection of tonight's events. I'd better tell you while I still can. I've lived on outskirts of Bear Creek National Park for my entire life. Don't bother looking it up, it's a fake name so nobody tries to seek out the evil that lurks here. It's safer that way. As I was saying, I used to live out there in a cabin with my dad. I miss him so much but he passed away years ago, leaving me all alone. Cancer is a bitch. That was before Nadia and I started dating. It's funny how things work out. I actually met her at a coffee shop on my way back from visiting my dad's grave. When she approached me and asked if the seat across from me was taken, I was instantly smitten. Her deep blue eyes shimmering like the ocean. Long, brown hair cascaded down her shoulders in waves. And that smile. When Nadia smiled, it was as if time stopped, just for a moment, so that the whole world could soak in its breathtaking beauty. We were inseparable after that day. In a month, we were dating. In nine more, we were living together in my cabin. And in another year, we were set to get married. Had a date and a venue picked out and everything. I was on cloud nine. But that was all torn from me in an instant. God, I wish I never would have taken her out there. I had my first encounter with the stairs when I was seven. Dad has always warned me never to climb them. That wasn't a problem for me though. The stairs exuded a malevolent presence. Like anyone who dared to walk up their steps would be eaten alive from fear alone. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was playing in the woods near the cabin when I saw it. A black winding set of metal stairs that stretched maybe a story. They didn't lead anywhere. They just kind of ended. All the stairs are like that. They vary in size and shape and model, but the only thing they all have in common is that they don't lead anywhere, and they've never in the same place twice. They just sort of materialise. No one knows how or why, and truthfully, we don't want to know. Most of us, that is. Nadia wanted to know, and that knowledge cost her everything. Come on baby, just a little further, I want to see the sunset, Nadia whined in protest at my proposal to head back. Nadia, I know you do, but we didn't bring flashlights and our phone batteries aren't worth crap. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like smacking into trees every few feet on our way home. Oh, fine, you win. I'll go back this time, but promise me we can come back tomorrow, she requested, puffing out her lower lip and gazing up at me with her best puppy dog eyes. I'd be lying if I said they hadn't worked. Alright, I'll take you back out here tomorrow, but only if you, um, I trailed off. Entranced by the sight of them, Nadia's brows knitted together in confusion as she traced my gaze, then her jaw fell open. Directly before us stood a polished cedarwood staircase. I got a sinking feeling in my gut the moment I laid eyes on them. It looked so out of place, like a rat in a fish tank. What is that thing? Nadia muttered, gaze still fixed to it. It's, it's nothing, I'll tell you later, I said, snatching her hand and leading her in the opposite direction. Uh, Jason, let go. Why are you making such a big deal of this? Tell me what's going on or I'm not moving another inch. Nadia protested, crossing her arms defiantly. I sighed. There was no point in hiding it any longer. She was just going to find out eventually. 
Okay, so this is going to sound completely unhinged, but please bear with me. Ever since I've lived here, ever since anyone's lived here really, people have been finding random staircases in the forest. They appear and disappear all the time. And you'll never find one in the same place twice. The stairs are a bad omen. Something awful will happen if you climb to the top, but no one quite knows what. All I know for certain is we need to stay far, far away from them. Nadia rolled her eyes in response. Come on, Jay. Do you really expect me to believe that? A bad omen? Are you some kind of spiritual medium now? Ooh, a staircase. So scary, she said, waving her hands in a mocking gesture. Nadia, do I look like I'm joking? I know it sounds crazy, but I wouldn't lie to you. She softly took my hands into hers and met my gaze. Baby, you know I wouldn't accuse you of that. It's strange, but if it really irks you out that much, I won't press it, okay? Thank you. Let's go home, I'm starving. Once we were out of sight of that wretched thing, I could sense the tension starting to disperse. It was as if a veil had been lifted. I fell asleep that night with a stomach full of dumplings and not a thought in the world besides a petite girl snuggled into my arms. The stairs had vanished from my brain, just like they always did, until the next day. We both had the entire day off work, and before I knew it, Nadia was pulling me back down the same path as the day prior to watch the sunset. Butterflies danced in my stomach as we approached a spot that we had seen the stairs the day before. Even so, Nadia noticed it first. Hey, isn't this the same place you pulled me away from yesterday? Those stairs, they're gone. See, I told you they're a bad omen. Now do you believe me? I never said I didn't. It's just a strange phenomenon, you know, like seeing a unicorn. You don't really ever expect to find one. Or in this case, not find it. It's a lot to process. I didn't know what to say. She'd hit the nail on the head with her analysis. Except the staircase was no unicorn. No, there was something far more sinister. We continued our walk in silence until we finally reached our destination. That evening will always stand out in my mind. The sky looked like a painter's canvas. A gorgeous amalgamation of purple and pink and orange melded together behind a smattering of light, wispy clouds. I'd never seen anything so picturesque. We stayed there well past the sunset, staring up into the sea of stars illuminating the night sky. Thank you for keeping your promise. Today was perfect, Nadia yawned, sleepily resting her head on my shoulder. Every day with you is perfect. Thank you for dragging me out of the house. This really has been incredible, and I love you so much. You're welcome, Bonehead. I love you too, Nadia giggled quietly, her eyes struggling to stay open. Alright, sweetheart, I think it's time for us to go back. You can hardly stay awake. Just a little longer. You're so comfy, she protested, burying her face into my chest. My heart felt so full in that moment. What had I done to deserve such an amazing girl? Alright, up we go, I said hoisting my weary girlfriend into my arms. If your legs won't move, I have no choice but to carry you. Oh no, how terrible. Whatever shall I do, she quipped, wrapping her arms around my neck. Nothing. Just stay still and let me. I froze mid-stride. I swallowed a dry lump in my throat as sweat began to bead atop my brow. In the darkness among the foliage, my flashlight beam fell upon a large, bulky object. They were back. Jason, what's wrong? You look pale, Nadia said, following the ray of light until she realised what I was looking at. A wide set of weathered concrete steps ascended to nowhere. They called to me, begging me to climb them. Just one step, just one, that's all. Jason, I feel it now. What you were talking about yesterday, I feel it. It's all wrong. They shouldn't be here, Nadia whimpered, fear jolting across her pupils. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, I said, ripping my gaze from the awful thing. Just don't look at it. We're going to be okay. This time, I wasn't as relieved once we'd escaped the staircase's alluring pool. I'd never seen the stairs two days straight before. They were always more sporadic in their appearance, never showing up with any rhythm or consistency. To see them twice made me feel a bit uneasy. Nadia and I didn't mention the stairs again that evening. We were both absolutely exhausted, and we were itching to get some much-needed rest. I'd be damned if I was going to let a stupid staircase ruin a good night's sleep. Nadia was already snoring when I joined her in bed, and I was out the second my head hit the pillow. If only we could have made it until morning. Maybe then she'd still be here. I awoke in a pitch black room, 
Nadia was missing from her side of the bed. I didn't worry at first. It wasn't abnormal for her to sneak off to the bathroom in the middle of the night every once in a while. I didn't want to drift back off until I had her by my side though. I waited and waited to no avail. Then after what felt like an eternity, I finally called out. Hey babe, are you coming back to bed soon? I received no response. That was when the panic set in. Nadia would never ignore me like that. I leapt out of bed and beelined for the bathroom. It was empty. My heart began to pound against my ribcage like a jackhammer. Sirens were blaring in my head telling me that something was wrong and I felt helpless to silence them. I turned the whole cabin inside out with no result. Nadia was nowhere to be found. Then amongst all the chaos, an idea flickered in my head. Why hadn't I thought of this sooner? Nadia's phone was missing from the bedside table, but I could track her location and find my friend. I fumbled to unlock my own phone and open the app. I had to know she was okay. I loaded up the app and located Nadia's location. She was close. The app said that she was only a few hundred feet from the cabin. I threw on a pair of shorts and darted out into the frigid night air. I raced barefoot across leaves and rocks and acorns. I didn't have time to grab shoes. Right then I didn't care if my feet were torn to ribbons, as long as Nadia was okay. I eventually reached a point where her phone should have been. I frantically called it, praying that she would pick up this time. I saw something illuminate amongst the leaves and not far beyond it. I found who I was searching for. But instead of being overcome with joy upon finding the love of my life, my blood turned to ice. Nadia's face was partially illuminated by the moonlight trickling through the canopy. She was gazing down at me with tears streaming down her cheeks. Below our feet sat a staircase. This time it was ornate. White glassy marble stairs gleamed even in the darkness, topped off with a pristine red carpet. The stairs looked as if they would lead straight to heaven itself, and that terrified me. Dread crashed over me like a tidal wave as we stared at each other. I wanted to move. I wanted to sprint up to her and sweep her off those godforsaken things, but I couldn't. I was rooted in place, forced to watch as the girl of my dreams ascended the final step. Jason, please, I, I don't want to go. I love you and I want to stay with you forever. I had to know. I could feel them calling me. Please don't let them take me. Nadia sobbed uncontrollably, reaching out a hand toward me. I wanted to grab it, to pull her into my arms, to tell her that everything was going to be okay. But I was stuck. I was forced to watch in abject horror as Nadia involuntarily took the one last step to the top. It felt as if time had slowed to a crawl. One second I was paralysed, eyes locked on Nadia and those vile stairs, and the next I was all alone. Nadia and the staircase had vanished, wisped into the cool night air like they had never existed at all. The burden of that night will stay with me until the day I die. I wailed, I screamed, I pounded the earth until my fists were bloody and my throat was hoarse. Nadia had been taken from me right before my very eyes and I did absolutely nothing. I blamed myself for a long time after that. Hell, I still do. I don't think I'll ever be able to move on. That's my punishment, I suppose. Living out a dull, meaningless life. While images of my lost girlfriend run through my head day in and day out. It's why I drink. Strangely enough, I have never seen the stairs again. They're really the only reason that I'm still here. Because maybe if I just give in, maybe if I convince myself to climb that one last looming step, then there might be a chance that I'll be reunited with Nadia. And for me, that's a chance that I have to take. The gas station gig isn't the job of my dreams, but when your diet becomes nothing but a steady stream of top ramen and tap water, you take what you can get. Thing is, the gas station I work at is, well, different. For starters, we don't sell any brand you'd recognise. There's brands like Po-Chips and Drink. Some are written in a language that I don't recognise. We're allowed to eat whatever we'd like though, so I've tried almost everything. I do not recommend the drink. We don't get very many customers on the night shift, but the ones we do, our regulars, are, well, off. Like played shirt guy, who comes in about once a week and buys the same map every time. He's also always in the same plaid shirt and Mr. Freeze, who comes in sporadically but always stares at the frozen section. 
He doesn't do anything else, and no amount of interaction will break his focus. He leaves after about 30 minutes. When he first started coming in, my co-worker Jude and I used to take turns asking if he needed help finding anything. Now we have a competition to see who can balance the most snack cakes on his shoulders before they fall. I currently hold the record at 8. Jude and I are definitely unlikely friends, as he's a 40 year old something man, built like Frankenstein's monster, and I'm a 28 year old woman who frequently forgets she's an adult. He's been working here longer than I have though, and showed me the ropes when I first started. He even talked me off the ledge of quitting after my very first shift. I'd had my first experience with the trash and after vomiting profusely I was ready to go. That's the other thing about the gas station. Yeah, the customers are pretty weird, but the place itself does things. Really weird things. The trash is one of them. We have to take it out every night, at 5 minutes to midnight. Can't do it sooner, and we're fucked if we do it any later. It fills to the brim with a grotesque compilation of maggots, centipedes and other abominations that probably crawled up from hell itself. Our job is to take the bag, or bags depending on the night, and deliver it to the edge of the parking lot. Jude says the trash man comes to collect it, but I've never seen him. Jude says I should be glad. Last shift started as usual. Jude was already there when I clocked in, and I tossed my backpack in my locker and made my way behind the counter to watch a telenovela Jude always had playing on the mini-TV stashed behind the counter. We usually pass the time this way, and even though we can't speak the language, the drama is always understood. It was about 11.45 when they arrived. A family of four, mother, father and two kids. We could hear them from the parking lot, the father's booming voice overtaking the mother's light, even tone. Jude and I exchanged a curious look and reluctantly I turned off the mini-TV. The bell above the door rang its shrill song as the father pushed the door open. Mother followed next and behind her a little girl and a little boy with a beagle and a blue collar that danced around his feet, nearly tripping him. Stupid dog, the father scolded as he grabbed the boy by the back of his shirt to save him from falling. Adam, the mother scolded. With their slick hairstyles and 70s style clothing, they looked incredibly out of place in the lobby. Jude and I glanced at each other again. We'd never seen any of them before. Excuse me, the father Adam approached the counter. We can't seem to find our way back to the highway. Would you be able to give us directions? We have an excellent collection of maps, Jude offered, motioning to the display rack as Adam used his wife and daughter, stepped up. Where's your lavatory? the woman asked, her tone urgent as the girl in front of her shifted her weight from foot to foot. Rachel, really? I wanted to be out of here in a jiffy and back on the road. Adam's tone was condescending as he addressed his wife. Rachel rolled her eyes. Dawn needs to go, she replied. It's just down the hall, second door on your right. I pointed and Rachel nodded, ushering Dawn along. I turned to Jude, wanting to ask if I should warn them about the woman in the bathroom, but he was preoccupied with Adam's questions about the map. Rustling drew my attention to the little boy and the dog who were rooting around the shelf, searching for snacks. Dad, I want these, the boy whined. Adam ignored him as he glanced between two maps, trying to make a final decision. The boy gathered up an armful of snacks and shuffled up to the counter, the beagle on his heels. I'll take this one, Adam slid the map towards the register as his son released his cache of snacks onto the counter. And those two. While Jude began ringing up the items, I slipped from behind the counter and walked briskly to the women's restroom, bracing myself before opening the door. I was surprised to see Rachel and Dawn at the sinks, washing their hands. They were surprised to see me peeking through the door too. Uh, I just wanted to make sure everything was okay, I called out, scanning the restroom for anything abnormal. Rachel chuckled nervously as she dried her hands, but Dawn stared bewildered as water continued to run into the sink. I sheepishly slipped out of the bathroom, relieved the woman decided against rearing her ugly head tonight. Well, it wasn't really ugly, but that was beside the point. Customers interacting with her never turned out well. My relief only lasted a moment though. I made it to the start of the hallway and saw a dark figure pressed against the front windows. My veins turned to ice. Jude? My voice was barely above a whisper, but Jude turned to me, then followed my gaze to the window. Trash man, he gasped. Oh shit, I replied. Then the power went out. I'd never seen the trash man before. If I'm honest, part of me wasn't sure if he existed. As well as it was, the bug spontaneously manifested in the trash. It just seemed improbable that someone was coming to pick them up from the edge of the parking lot. I thought Jude was fucking with me. I should have known better. 
I squinted to read the clock face above the drink section. 12.07. We were late. Jude vaulted over the counter, kicking the map and snacks onto the floor as he raced to the front door, arms outstretched to help him navigate the darkness. Adam and his son yelled in protest, but Jude was on the move. As soon as I saw the panic kit in his hand, I knew shit was about to hit the fan. He pulled salt from the bag in a flash and poured a thick line of it in front of the door before turning to face the trash man. The power outage extended to the parking lot, and without those lights I could barely make out his dark, looming figure as he stood fixed in the window. He wore some sort of hooded cloak that obscured his face, and his frame was enormous, easily twice the size of Jude. Malice exuded from him. What's going on? Rachel demanded as she and Don exited the restroom. She briskly walked past me to join her husband and son at the counter. Don lingered next to me, her eyes wide. That's what I'd damn well like to know, Adam said indignantly. That should hold him for now. Jude's voice was confident, but his distraught expression was concerning. Well, who the hell is that? the boy asked, his tone reminiscent of his father's. Gregory, Rachel scoffed. A brief smirk crossed Adam's face before he placed his hand on Gregory's shoulder and pulled him close. A loud clunk broke the silence and Jude and I locked eyes. I'll get it, I said softly before turning and walking down the hall to the manager's office. No one's seen the manager before, he doesn't leave his office, and no one goes in. He communicates through notes that he slides through the mail slot in his door. Their delivery signalled by the solid clunk of the flap closing. While I'd never seen one before, Jude realised that we follow all directions from the manager. I agree, but mostly because I'm pretty sure he signs our paychecks. I could hear Adam and Jude arguing as I rounded the corner. I had no idea how Jude was going to explain any of this. I was glad I didn't have to. I picked up the paper and read the manager's instructions. Fuck. When I returned, Trashman had disappeared from the window. The family had grouped together against the front counter while Jude paced in front of the door. He stopped when he saw me. What did he say? Jude asked. What did who say? Adam barked. I swallowed hard. The manager says we need a sacrifice. The beagle whined. Shut up, zipper, Adam roared. The dog, along with the kids, shrank back. Rachel stepped forward. Can I speak with this manager, she asked. I'm sure if we had more information, this could be an easier process. To hell with that. This doesn't have anything to do with us. We're leaving. Adam grabbed the map from the floor and marched towards the door. Jude blocked his path. You can't go out there. The hell I can. I don't know what kind of con the two of you are running, but my family and I are leaving. He's hungry, and he's hunting, okay? We have to stay here and figure out what the manager meant. Adam shoved Jude hard, cutting his speech short. Honey, wait, Rachel cried. Both kids were clinging to her now. Damn it, Rachel, not now, Adam bellowed. He pushed past Jude and held the door open. All of you out. I'm still not sure if it was the tone of Adam's voice or the word out that sent the little beagle scrambling for the door. I had a sneaking suspicion that he was quite accustomed to the volume. Either way, he took off at breakneck speed and barreled through Jude's legs and out the door onto the void of the parking lot and certain death. Zipper no, Gregory cried. I think we were all still in shock from Zipper's jailbreak, so much so that when Gregory broke free from his mother's grip and sprinted for the door, no one reacted. One moment he was there, the next we were watching his sneakers disappear into the darkness. Rachel's scream was heartbreaking as she called out her son's name. Jude slammed the door and leaned his body against it. His breathing quick and shallow, his face contoured with regret. Rachel collapsed to the ground, sobbing. Dawn held onto her mother's dress with a white knuckle grip. Adam was rooted to the spot. A blinding flash of light signalled the power being restored. The parking lot was empty. No signs of Trashman, Gregory or Zipper. Jude took a deep breath, then made his way behind the counter. Rachel, Dawn and Adam blinked and looked around in confusion. Did you want anything beside the map, sir? Jude asked. I stared at him in disbelief. Adam looked down at the map in his grip, then back to Jude. No, no, I don't think so. His voice sounded far away. Rachel and Don shuffled to join him in front of the door. Thanks for stopping in. Safe travels. Jude sounded almost mechanical in his farewell. The family nodded hesitantly. Adam opened the door for them to leave, and much to everyone's surprise, Zipper the Beagle came scudding in through the door. Oh, thank God, I sighed. A silver lining. The family just looked to me as confused as anyone could be. 
your dog, Zipper. Oh, we don't have a dog, Rachel said softly. Dawn shook her head in solidarity. Adam cleared his throat and mother and daughter shuffled out into the parking lot. But your son, I asked, a twinge of desperation in my voice. Adam's brow furrowed as his confusion turned to frustration, then he followed Rachel and Dawn out. They won't remember, Jude's voice broke the silence that followed Adam's exit. Zipper sat at my feet and whined. I knelt down and picked him up gingerly. He had no signs of being hurt, though was missing his collar. So that's what happens when you don't take the trash out, I said. Jude nodded and turned on the mini-TV before gesturing to the mess of snacks on the floor. And someone needs to clean that up. Alright, let me just try to recall this as best as I can. It happened a while back, and I try not to think about it more than I have to. For starters, I used to work in a gas station, but I suppose the title made that obvious enough, I guess. It wasn't a place in the middle of the city, but it wasn't way out in the countryside either. It was one of those awkward in-between areas, where mostly it's just low-end houses, fast food joints and gas stations like the one that hired me. The station was on a two-lane road that wasn't far from a major highway, and we get a lot of people stopping in for gas who were on their way to the beach for the weekend, or just passing through on their way to cities around us. Typical of any gas station like the one I worked at, if I do say so myself. But you see, that was during normal hours. Once the sun went down, oh, that was when the fun really started. That was when all the freaks showed up. Late at night, all the shadier customers would show their repulsive faces. Drunks would stumble through the doors and keep on going right for the back wall where we kept all the alcohol. Teenagers would slink in, trying to buy cigarettes. I'd ID all of them, and some of the cards they showed me looked fake. Some didn't. To be honest with you, I didn't really care. If they wanted to wreck their health, it was their business. Potheads would wander in too and load up on chips and ice cream. Oh god. Oh god. The ones who would buy ice cream were a funny bunch. More often than not, they'd ask for a spoon with their ice cream, and we only had the crappy plastic kind. I had one idiot stand there for 20 minutes trying to scoop the dessert into his mouth with one of those bendy spoons. One time, a guy shoplifted the store right in front of me, around midnight. Then he walked outside, called the cops on himself, and just stood there in the parking area waiting for them to show up. I had followed him outside and asked him what his deal was. He looked at me and said he was just wanting a place to sleep for the night. I hadn't expected that. But I told him that if he wanted to sell the story, then he should keep on running. That he did. He walked off the property and down the small road. I heard sirens not long after. But I suppose I should tell you about the big one. The fucker who made me quit that job. I have a tendency to ramble, and like I said, I try not to think about this guy. It was another graveyard shift. Another night of my life spent behind a cheap wooden counter. I was pissing my life away, but I was doing it for some money. So it was all good. And I was better off than most of the people who walked through those doors anyway. It was 2.20am or so. I remember staring at the clock in boredom, watching the two dots of the display tick on and off as I counted the seconds. That was when I heard the bell over the door, and I looked up to gauge the person who had just stepped into my little world. He was only a little over 5 feet tall, and looked like he could easily be 50 years old. His skin was rough and saggy. His arms and legs were dotted all over with tiny white hairs, matched by equally white hair which hung down in long reams from his head. It was scraggly and matted together. You know how hair gets if you don't take a shower for like two days. This guy looked like he had spent two weeks without any good graces of any shampoo. He slowly walked his way over to the counter, mechanically, like each step was a deliberate action. Finally, he made it over to me, and he thumped his hands onto the counter for support. His hands were crisscrossed with viscerous veins. They looked like cracks in broken glass. Lines of a black grit ran underneath the edge of his fingernails. He finally opened his mouth to speak and gave me a good view of his slimy yellow teeth. Fucking disgusting. He asked in a croaky voice where our bathroom was, and I just pointed sternly towards the back corner of the room. There was a little hallway which held doors to the storage rooms and one small bathroom. He lumbered off in the general direction, and I silently thanked God that the beard was out of my face. I heard the door click shut. Once again, I was by myself, for the most part. The station was silent for five minutes, then ten, fifteen. It started to get weird how long this guy was taking in the bathroom. If this were a normal looking guy, I wouldn't have questioned it. 
but the man in there was anything but normal. As the 20 minute mark approached, I journeyed out from behind my counter and toward the bathroom. I knocked on the door a couple of times and asked if the guy needed any help. I heard him mumble from the other side that he was fine, but he didn't sound at all fine to me. I wasn't about to argue with him though, so I just walked back over to the counter and sat down in my chair. Another 10 minutes went by and the guy still hadn't come out of the bathroom. I was getting agitated at that point. Eventually I started hearing a noise. At first I couldn't really tell what it was, but it didn't take me long to figure it out. I was hearing moaning. I started walking back to the bathroom once again. This time I could tell as I neared the door that something wasn't right. It sounded like the man was in pain, maybe even afraid. Sheepishly, I knocked on the door once again, and for a while I didn't get a response. But eventually the man manages to choke out two simple words. Help me. His moaning was getting louder and turning to yelling. I started hearing banging coming from inside the bathroom. I could even feel it shake the floor just a little. I went for the knob, but of course the man had locked himself into the bathroom and hadn't got around to actually trying to unlock it. I was panicking a little bit. I didn't know if this was just a bad case of the runs or something like that, or if it was something more serious. I started to think that the latter was true, but there was a rancid stench that was beginning to make its way out of the bathroom. It could have just been some horrible diarrhea, I thought. I shuddered a little bit at that. I shouted at him to open the door. He had to unlock it if he wanted help, of course, but he wasn't listening to me. He had started babbling some incoherent nonsense about how he had to keep the door locked because he was only safe in that room. They were coming for him, he said. I kept shouting at him to unlock the door, but he was off on a horrible tangent about how they were coming for him and how they had finally figured him out. All the while, his slurred speech was punctuated by cries for help. He just kept shouting for help. I kept hearing banging. I was freaked out in that moment. I didn't figure I had the time to call the cops or anything like that. The man's speech was trailing off and he sounded like he was in a very bad way. I'd like to say that I didn't freak out, that I knew what to do and handled the situation in a, well, respectable way. But I did none of that. I spent the next probably five minutes pacing in that hallway, my hands pressed to my head in desperation while I tried to think of something, anything. The man's yelling and flailing had stopped, I noticed, and I was desperate to do something. Finally, I was struck with inspiration. I went into the storage room next to me, and I grabbed a rolling dolly that we used to move some of the heavier crates around. Then I rushed back into the hallway, and with all the force I could muster, which must have been a lot thanks to adrenaline, I bashed the door wide open. The smell that hit me almost made me throw up right there and then. I dropped the rolling dolly and stumbled away from the room, gagging. I almost fell over, but I steadied myself in a wine shelf. I had to take a moment to catch myself, and I felt like I was going insane. It really struck me then that I needed outside help, so I did what any sensible person would have done a while back. I called the police. I assumed the worst. In the moment I saw the man, it had looked like he was certainly dead. He was sprawled out on the tile floor, half-heartedly resting against the wall. His back was slumped down, curving in the space between the wall and the floor, his knuckles were very bloody, and pock marks in the wall, which were also licked with blood, made it fairly obvious he'd been punching around. It was obvious enough where the smell was coming from. The bastard was sitting in a putrid film of brown liquid. Yeah, he had shit himself. He wasn't even on the toilet for Christ's sake. I mean, fucking hell. I was still in the line with the police. I did my best to describe the scene to them. As much as I really didn't want to know what happened to that guy in the bathroom, I figured he could still need help. I announced to the operator that I was going to go back in. I held out hope that he was alive, but feared otherwise. I guess I really went back into the hallway just out of morbid curiosity, more than anything else. I had to pull up my shirt and cover my face with it to keep the smell from overpowering me. It didn't really help too much. The guy had a yellowish powder all around his nose and his mouth, as well as little froth at the corners of his lips. His eyes were bloodshot and glazed over. I said to the operator that it looked like he'd overdosed on some drugs. I couldn't take it anymore, I had to go outside for some fresh air. I was feeling groggy and mortified and slightly depressed. A man had just died next to me for God's sake. At the most, I was out there for five minutes. I could already hear sirens when I stepped into the cool night breeze. Only five minutes. But here's the thing. Here's what really messed me up bad. 
When the police arrived, they asked me to show them where the incident had occurred. An ambulance was there as well, and the paramedics were getting their equipment. I led them all the way to the back, and it still smelled horrible. There were still punch marks on the wall, and there was still some of that drug powder dusted around the floor. But the man who'd been laying there was gone. He was just fucking gone. Like he hadn't even been there. I don't mean he was gone in the sense that he got up and left. There wasn't any bootprints. No streaks of liquid on the floor. No handprints on the walls. There was none of that. It was like he had just vanished. I can't explain it. I don't want to know what happened that night. I quit a few days later. I couldn't keep going back there. Not after all that. You know, the things that guy said keep replaying in my head. All those things about how they were coming for him. God help me. Man, it was one of those days where the rain decided to pour down like there was no tomorrow. I'm sitting there at this small therapy clinic, staring out the window, thinking about how annoying it's going to be to walk home without an umbrella. Like seriously, Rain, can you cut me some slack? Suddenly the door swings open, and in walks Kate, the new psychiatrist. I greeted her with a big old smile, trying to hide my annoyance with weather. She introduces herself, all professional-like. Hey, I'm Kate, the new shrink around here. I guided her to her office, where she's going to be stationed, as per the clinic manager's orders. The day's been quiet, and it's just me and Kate in the clinic, so I figure, why not strike up a conversation? I stroll into Kate's office, trying to be friendly. So, Kate, how long have you been practicing the art of messing with people's heads? She chuckles and says, about ten years now. You know, the usual stuff. Listening to people's problems and pretending like I have all the answers. I'm genuinely impressed, and I ask her how she got into the whole therapy gig. That's when I notice something off about her. She's visibly bothered by something. Being the nosy person I am, I ask her what's eating at her. She hesitates, glancing around like she's afraid someone might be eavesdropping, patient confidentiality and all that jazz. I push her a little bit, telling her it's just us here. Spill the beans. Finally, she sighs and decides to share a story. Alright, fine, but this one's a doozy, she warns, looking dead serious. I lean in, my curiosity in full blast. She starts telling me about this kid named Gabriel, a 13-year-old who gave her the creeps. I mean 13. Kids that young needing therapy. The world's messed up, man. Kay explains how she met Gabriel and his mum at this rundown house on Mill Street. The boy seemed normal at first, but then she asked what was wrong with him. Gabriel's mum goes on about how since he was six, the kid avoided going outside like the plague. Windows were a no-go zone too. I'm thinking, okay, maybe he's just an introvert or something. But Kate's face turns serious as she continues. Apparently, Gabriel wouldn't spill the beans about why he was so scared to go outside. The mum was clueless and the kid was keeping quiet, like he was holding on to some deep, dark secret. She then continued her story where she visits Gabriel's home, determined to unravel the mystery behind the kid's fear of the great outdoors. On day one, everything seemed normal. Cartoons, YouTube videos, books with mum. Nothing out of the ordinary. But that window instant, that's what kept Kate up at night. As the day continues, Kate's got her eyes peeled, watching Gabriel like a hawk for any clues. The kid's doing the same routine. Cartoons, iPad, books, all the usual stuff. But then like clockwork, he inches closer to that darn window. For a whole hour, Gabriel just stares outside, looking terrified. Kate glances out, expecting to see a UFO or a creepy neighbour. But it's just a regular backyard on a cloudy day. Nothing to freak out about, right? Wrong. When Kate asks Gabriel what he sees, the kid loses it. It's there, waiting for me to come outside, he mutters. Voice trembling. Kate's skin crawls and she asks the million dollar question. Who's there, sweetie? The boy screams no, like he's been chased by the boogeyman and bolts back to his room, treating it like some fortress of solitude. Kate's now officially creeped out, wondering if the kid's imagination is working overtime or if there's something more sinister lurking. After the five-hour shift, Kate leaves, feeling a sense of unease. She talks to Gabriel's mum, asking if the boy is ever taking hallucinogenic meds or anything like that. The mum, defensive yet concerned, reassures Kate that she wouldn't let her kid pop pills without a doctor's say-so. Day one wraps up with Kate promising to come back tomorrow. As she tells me this, I'm getting goosebumps, 
I ask, what did you do on the second day, Kate? She smirks a bit, saying, you're going to have to wait for tomorrow to find out. I roll my eyes slightly disappointed, but life at the clinic calls. New visitors are streaming in. As I head home, eat dinner and lay in bed, I can't shake the feeling that Kate's story is going to unveil something dark and twisted. Tomorrow can't come soon enough. The next day crept in, and I was on a mission to wrap up work pronto, desperate to unravel the chilling tale Kate had started. But the clinic was buzzing with visitors, each with their own brand of chaos, and I hustled through the day managing the madness with a dash of disappointment. By the end of my eight-hour shift, fatigue etched lines on my face. Kate caught the look on my face, and out of kindness, she decided to spill more of her eerie story. My face lit up like a sunflower under the midday sun. We both left the clinic, making a beeline for Kate's home where I settled down on her comfy couch, eagerly waiting for the next chapter. Kate took a deep breath and dove back into the tale. On the second day at Gabriel's place, things seemed normal until Kate wanted a quick smoke outside. That's when Gabriel, urgency in his voice, stopped her, warning her that opening the door would let it in. Intrigued, Kate peered outside but found no one. Choosing not to open the door, the boy visibly relaxed. Thinking on her feet, Kate asked Gabriel to draw what he saw in the backyard. Surprisingly, the boy agreed and quickly grabbed his drawing supplies. As he sketched, I watched in shock as the image took form. A tall, pale woman with long black hair, long arms wearing a white dress smeared in blood. A creepy smile etched on her face. Holy shit, Kate muttered, her heart racing. She even asked Gabriel if this was the reason he avoided the outside, and he nodded in confirmation. Even Gabriel's terrified mother gazed upon the drawing. At the end of the five-hour shift, Kate meticulously documented every detail in her report. She nudged me to call it a day, promising to finish the story tomorrow. In shock, I left for home, unable to eat or do anything as fear and excitement churned in my mind. That night, Kate detailed the story further. She spoke about the shift in Gabriel's home atmosphere after the drawing. A sinister presence that sent shivers down her spine. She recounted the eerie feeling of being watched, as if the creature depicted the drawing was somehow aware of their decision. The next day at the clinic, it was a mix of anticipation and dread, eager to unravel the conclusion of Kate's unsettling experience with Gabriel. Little did I know, the story was far from over and the answers might be darker than I could have ever imagined. The next morning, I woke up feeling like I hadn't slept at all, thanks to the barrage of late-night text messages from Kate. My usual morning routine felt like a chore, but I pressed on and headed to work. To my surprise, the clinic was eerily quiet once again. A sense of relief washed over me. I couldn't fathom dealing with another day of administrative chaos like the one before. Just when I thought it was going to be a mundane day, Kate strolled into the clinic, offering to finish her story in her office before the inevitable swarm of visitors descended upon us. Is it Christmas Day already? I quipped excitedly. Kate chuckled and we both settled down into her office with steaming cups of coffee. The air became tense as Kate resumed her story, her eyes filled with seriousness and dread. On the third and final day of her assessment with Gabriel, Kate entered the boy's chilling home, suspecting schizophrenia or monstrous illness tied to his anxiety. Little did she know, the terrifying climax awaited her. As Kate monitored Gabriel, he claimed to hear strange noises from the basement. Curiosity outweighed caution, and Gabriel insisted on investigating. Kate, uneasy, accompanied him. When she opened the basement door, an anonymous stairway descended into darkness. To Kate's horror, A long, pale arm shot out from the abyss, snatching Gabriel and pulling him into the darkness. He screamed in terror, pleading for salvation. Kate panicked, chased after him, but when she illuminated the basement with light, Gabriel was nowhere to be found. His mother, puzzled, revealed that he was napping in his room. Perplexed, Kate rushed into Gabriel's room, only to find him peacefully asleep. However, something was off. Gabriel awoke, seemingly normal, but Kate sensed an underlying difference when he miraculously stepped into the outside world. Kate couldn't shake the feeling that things weren't as they seemed. Writing her report, Kate convinced herself that Gabriel had returned to normal, but the haunting memory of the basement lingered. 
The boy's mother thanked Kate for resolving the dilemma, unaware of the doubts clouding the psychiatrist's mind. Kate left that day with a multitude of questions, haunted by the unsettling experience in the basement. As she finished her tale, my eyes widened with horror. I told you so, Kate muttered. I know, you don't have to tell me that, I replied in a scared tone. Kate tried to reassure me, urging me not to dwell on the story, as it might affect my work. I attempted to put on my brave face, but deep down the terror lingered. As new visitors flooded the clinic, I went back to my routine, forever haunted by the basement incident in Kate's chilling story, unsure if it was true or a fragment of a disturbed imagination. You know that meme about how presidents and governors after getting elected look super shell-shocked and stressed the next time they make a public appearance? Like the first thing that happens after you come into power is that you're pulled into a room and told all the secrets of the world. Well, it turns out it's true. As a matter of fact, it's a VHS tape. The four-hour tape was always a bit of an urban legend at the office. I'll be keeping the details of my role in government very, very vague, but to be absolutely clear, I am a very low-level employee. My role is caked between layers of bureaucracy, and in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's a pretty inconsequential role. When you're working at my level, you're generally not privy to any high-level secrets. Yes, top-secret meetings did occasionally happen in our building, but my focus is pretty limited and heavily administrative. So, you do what any other department does when you're in the bottom rung of the hierarchy. You discuss rumours, rumblings, crazy conspiracy theories, and everything in between. It's water cooler conversation for us. Man, I wonder what the folks at the top are doing right now. That kind of stuff. Out of all the rumours that flutter around the office, the four-hour tape was always the one I found the most fascinating. The crux of it. Once you can reach the highest clearance level, you're sat down and shown this tape. None of us knew what the contents of the tape were, or if the tape like this even actually existed, but it was fun to speculate about it every now and then. Most of the time, we found with our little rumours and conspiracy theories that the most mundane answer was usually the correct one. Life, in general, finds a way to surprise us with how boring everything can be. Now, there's something you should know about me before I continue. I'm a wimp. I'm meek, anxious, and generally restless. I'm a chronic rule follower. There is no part of me that wants to dig up secret documents and uncover the truth about what happens at the highest level of government in our country. So when I discussed the events of four nights ago, please be mindful of that. I didn't ask for this, and I'm only sharing because I didn't know how much time I have left anyway, and I can't live with this stuck in my conscience, alone. It was night time at the office. I'm known to be a bit of a chronic workaholic, and there was something I really wanted to get done before the week was over, so I was working later than usual. I went to print a document on what I thought was a printer in my immediate vicinity. The notification on my computer showed that my document was being printed, but I didn't hear any noise or paper coming out from the local printer. I checked the name of the device I selected, and it looked like I had accidentally clicked on the printer that was being used on another floor. I sighed. In any normal circumstance, I probably would have just forgotten about that mistake and reprinted the documents on my local printer again, but our general management here is quite pernickety in us making sure that all confidential documents are accounted for. We're not allowed to share department-specific documentation to other departments. Fuck it, I thought. I looked up a map in my inbox showing the locations of all the company printers. Turns out I'd accidentally clicked on the printer name Prince Charming on the seventh floor. <laughs> Funny name. Off I went. I really should have just let it be. I got to the elevator and rode it up to the seventh floor. I emerged onto the mostly empty office area. In case you are wondering, the building I work in is huge. But I'd worked there for a long enough time. I know my way around it. So I knew the area surrounding the printer relatively well. I made my way through the hallways and eventually spotted the printer with my freshly printed papers minting it. I gave myself a mental pat on the back for continuing my lifelong streak of following the rules. As I went to grab the papers, I noticed some light buzz in a meeting room nearby. I looked through the windows to see roughly ten people hanging out around a snack table. In the room was a large old looking TV on a cart and rows of some of the fanciest folding chairs I had ever seen, organised in a neat fashion. I didn't think much of it and started walking off, until I heard the door open. Hey, Mr. Boskowitz, right? Jesus, man, we were supposed to start 15 minutes ago. Get in here. Uh, what? No, sorry, I, th I think you have the wrong... I don't care why you're late. 
Just get in here, grab a plate of snacks and sit down. We're starting soon. Put your phone in the bag, electronic watch in the bag, and everything else in your person that can be used to record audio or video, he responded hastily. Something about his sternness and tone short-circuited my brain. For guys like me, there is a third option beyond fight and flight. It's called the just go with it until it's over, also known as the captured rabbit strategy. I put my phone and watch in the bag. I meekly tried to butt in with another, Sir, I'm not Mr. Boskowitz, but he had already pulled me into the room at this point. He closed the door and walked to the front by the TV. I thought about making a break for it, but I decided to just see it through at this point, hoping deep down that whatever was happening was as inconsequential as my job was. Everyone had their snack plates and were heading to their seats. I awkwardly grabbed a muffin from the snack table, put it on a napkin and took a seat in the very back row. Everyone was spaced out from each other. It didn't seem like any of these folks knew one another. I quietly sighed at the thought of having to sit through some of the boring informational seminar or the relevant training session. After a few minutes of everyone settling in, the man who originally brought me into the room started talking. There was an equally serious guy standing next to him, and a service secret looking fella standing in the corner. Hmm. I started wondering to myself why we were going to watch a video of a very old school looking TV. Felt like we were all back in elementary school or something. Alright, I just need to do a final run through before we get started. The man at the front said, I know you all read through the emails and signed your releases. I just want to recap some ground rules. You're allowed to get up and grab another snack, but beyond that, we want you to pay full attention to the tape once it starts playing. If any of you need to go to the bathroom, we strongly urge you to wait until the presentation is over. If you absolutely have to go, we will pause the tape and one of us will escort you. There is water in the corner by the snacks, cups are right there as well. And uh, well, it goes without saying. But any discussion of this presentation to folks who do not have top clearance is a breach of your terms of employment, a breach of your non-disclosure agreement, a breach of your multiple signed releases, a breach of the US criminal code in the state of redacted, and a breach of the conditions laid out by the Committee of the Protection and Preservation of Human Consciousness. They started dimming the lights. Fuck. It felt like I'd missed any window of opportunity I had to leave. Too late. The committee name he highlighted sounded way above my clearance level. One of the men at the front of the room pulled out a VHS tape from a bag, and very slowly and securely put it into a VHS player. He pressed play. I took a deep breath. Those water cooler conversations I'd had with my co-workers were starting to float to the top of my mind. But I quilled them. There was probably no need to panic. It was just a stupid government meeting, right? The tape started. The beginning was familiar enough. Various disclaimers about this being incredibly confidential material, yada yada yada. Insignias of relevant organisations, presidential libraries, and so on. I'd seen lots of videos like this already. But wait. That insignia looked strange. Like something was off. I scanned it. Presidential libraries. That same eagle, those same stars. Weird. This time there was a navy blue hand on the left shoulder of the eagle. Did they upgrade the logo? Before I had time to ruminate on it too much, the tape cut to a logo I'd actually never seen before. Committee for the Protection and Preservation of Human Consciousness. The logo was just an image of planet Earth. Fair enough. The video cut to a room that looked similar to the Congress floor, but with some strange differences. Seats were much more spaced out. The podium looked like it had seen better days, and the whole room looked to be on a pretty steep incline. Everything was in black and white. It looked like there was about 50 people in attendance. It was hard to make out their faces. Everything looked very dated, like the video was from the 40s or the 50s. The tape lingered on this one shot for quite a while. Minutes passed. I noticed what looked to be a choir, all in outfit and perfectly huddled next to each other, standing in one of the corners of the room. It really felt like I shouldn't have been seeing this. None of this was meant for my eyes. After a few more minutes, the tape abruptly cut to an awkwardly angled video of a man speaking at the podium in the room. It was too zoomed in, enough that you couldn't see his eyes or hair. It didn't look all that professional. I couldn't tell who he was. He spoke. Members of the Committee for the Protection and Preservation of Human Consciousness, I thank you all for coming tonight. We are lucky to be in the good graces of our visitors today, without rehashing our painful history. The tape cut to a camera slowly panning over all the faces of the folks seated in the room. The attendees looked pained, sombre. 
the man continued his speech as the camera continued panning over the committee. We can acknowledge that the journey to this moment has been an audacious one. I am pleased to say that humanity, faced with a dire ultimatum, has come to a majority decision. To our esteemed guests from across the solar system, we are thankful for the opportunity you have given us to negotiate with you. I felt adrenaline. Fuck. We had made contact with extraterrestrial. This was the truth. Maybe, like the saying went, the truth would set me free. Before I outline the decision taken by humanity, I want to, from the bottom of my heart, thank the brilliant representatives from all the nations of the world. We come together to ensure that this decision was taken with utmost responsibility, care and appreciation for a human species. I am aware that this was not a unanimous decision. Shit, what did that mean? I felt sweat on my brow. I felt nausea coming in. I awkwardly and slowly took a bite of my muffin. The tape returned to a now corrected angle of the speaker at the podium. His eyes were visible. They looked strained, like they'd seen multiple versions of hell. To the nations who still disagree, he continued, I thank you nonetheless for accepting the majority decision. May this moment, which will be held in secrecy throughout the rest of time, be appreciated as a critical milestone for human civilization. Tonight is not a victory. It's a sombre moment. However, we are faced with two options, extinction or accepting the agreement. We made our choice and I believe time will show that this was the right decision. What? What was this? I hereby announce that we accept agreement provided by our special guests who have chosen to go by the name Redacted. The intergalactic species known as Redacted will allow humanity on planet Earth to continue to populate, grow and innovate. In return, all governments of the world will honour the promise. He needed to spit it out. What the fuck was this agreement? We will not be covering every element of the agreement in this session. I will, however, highlight the main points. At this point, the video showed the man on the podium looking down. He was reading off something. For the first time, he looked nervous, scared. I saw some humanity in him. We honour the agreement that redacted hold the right to visit planet Earth on reoccurring basis. They will be allowed to consume, for the basis of nourishment, a majority of the human population on planet Earth. After every visit, the remaining humans on Earth will be expected to breed and grow to capacity in time for the next visit. We acknowledge that this will maintain a parallel history which will be shared with our world's population to ensure that humanity stays motivated to continue existing as a species. This parallel history may suggest that mass extinction events are the result of man-made folly, as opposed to the work of external forces. For the first time, my fight-or-flight response was actually flight. I wanted to escape, but I didn't know what I'd be running from. The last visit by Redacted was approximately in the year 1346, and it lasted seven years. We will continue to honour our parallel history about this event. I just wanted it to end. The next visit, which will be met with resistance, will be in the year 2028 and will run on for one full calendar year on Earth, making a 675 year gap between the last significant visit by the species known as Redacted. The visiting cadence is expected to speed up over time, as the remaining humans continue to sharpen their focus on building technology to allow humanity to reproduce in a speedy and productive manner. Jesus Christ, our planet is a fucking farm. I wanted to look away, but I couldn't. The tape cut away to a large view of the Congress-like room, the sombre committee members in attendance and the members of the choir in the corner, which I could only imagine looked horrified. Where were the visitors? Why couldn't I see them? The camera then panned to a number of larger, empty seats. The same slow style of video panning as the one that happened earlier with the committee members. No visible entities in the seats, but the seats themselves looked bloody. The man at the podium carried on with his speech, as the camera panned on those bloody seats continued. We should acknowledge the privilege of knowing that there is indeed life in cosmos, that extraterrestrial life has chosen to visit our planet, and that the cycle and balance provided by nature extends beyond the confines of planet Earth. Much like humanity has found its place on Earth in the food chain, we acknowledge our place in the divine order of things when encountered with beings of greater power, understanding, cognitive function, and evolutionary progression. Fucking hell, I shouldn't have stayed late at work. I should have made my identity clear from the very beginning. I knew that I wasn't supposed to see this. And while... Fuck, it really looked like the speaker was about to cry. 
While the process of consumption is a painful and lengthy one, we respect the trade-off that comes with the preservation of our species. We also acknowledge as part of the promise that substitutes for human life in the form of clones should we discover that technology in the future or other living species will never function as viable alternatives for nourishment, the speaker continued. I don't need to know this, the whole thing was way too specific for me. Our final major acknowledgement as part of this agreement is that we accept Redacted as the Great Almighty, as the entities will now refer to as God. God as an interstellar species has revealed itself to us and thus the continued existence of Redacted is now the true priority of people of our planet. We are blessed to play a part in the constitution of God, in God we trust. Amen. The tape then cut to footage of the choir as the speaker continued. We bless our visitors with this gift. A performance of the national anthems of all major nations of the world will now commence. Audio of a very loud backing track of the Star Spangled Banner started playing from the video as my stomach sank. The tape showed footage of the choir singing on the top of the track. Not sure if it was because they were scared for their lives, but I could really tell they were singing their hearts out. As they sang, the camera continued to pan over the bloody seats. They finished singing the anthem, and suddenly, fast forwarding, fucking hell I had forgotten I was sitting in a room. I had disengaged from the video for a brief moment, I had mentally returned to the present day. This was our world. This was our fucking lives. The men at the front continued fast forwarding through the tape. It looked like they were skipping through performances of other national anthems. The fast forwarding went on for a while. Every small while, it looked like a new choir group was entering the congress room to sing a different national anthem. On and on the tape went. I had to fight the urge to pass out. One of the men at the front of our room, standing next to the TV, started speaking up. We are legally obligated to get to the end of this tape, but you don't need to look at the rest of it. Please feel free to look down or close your eyes or grab a snack, he said. I noticed that others seated in the room were taking that advice. Most of them decided to look straight down. For some weird reason, I couldn't look away. The fast forwarding progressed. On the tape, it was yet another choir group joining to perform an anthem, and then another and another. It looked like they were near the end. The fast forwarding now showed a conversation between the man at the podium and another man who was whispering in his ear. The man at the podium was vigorously shaking his head. The other man continued whispering. This continued on. Eventually there was a quick moment and the man Eventually there was a quick moment of the man at the podium begrudgingly nodding. The last few fast forwarded moments of the tape remained burned in my memory to this very moment. It was pandemonium. The attendees were sitting in their chairs, frozen, shivering, crying. The people in the various choirs were running around the rooms in fast motion as bloody spots started covering them and ungodly things started happening to them. Fuck, why didn't I look away? If ever there was a fucking time to follow orders, I felt like the whole thing went on for longer than it should have. Finally, the men at the front of our room stopped the fast forwarding. They pressed play on the tape to cover the very final moment. In the tape, the man at the podium, clearly emotional, spoke his final line. The agreement has been ratified by Reducted. Thank you all for attending. The final shot of the video is the full room, the committee member in their seat shivering and crying, the dismantled and bloodied choir members strolling about the room, the bloody seats with blood smeared on them. The video then cut away, back to the same insignia in the black backdrop, the presidential libraries, that eagle, those stars, the navy blue hand on the wing of the eagle. The lights in our room turned on. The rest of the night was a blur. The men at the front of the room told us it was best for us to sit for an hour to digest the information. No discussion about the video was allowed to take place. When we were ready to stand, we were allowed to leave and go home. They gave us some pointers now to accept the information over the coming weeks. Things like taking long walks, exercising, watching a sitcom and so on. I wasn't worried about them realising that I wasn't supposed to be there. If anything, I felt a strange camaraderie with everyone in that room. We were all truly in the same boat. As soon as I left the building and got in my car, I just drove, for as long as I could. I would stop for gas, then I'd keep driving. I'd stop again, then I'd keep driving, again and again. I'm holed up in a hotel now. I'm just glad I could get this off my chest. 
The funny thing is, all I can think about is the length of that stupid tape. While I can't confirm, I feel like if it were played straight through without fast forwarding, it would have only been three hours. I wonder if the four hour tape rumour has come from the fact that we all needed an extra hour to digest the information. And now you're probably wondering, why don't I name the species that's going to spell humanity's doom throughout the rest of time? Why am I calling them redacted? Well, as the self-appointed leader of the committee for the acknowledgement that we should have just chosen extinction, I don't feel the need to honour our captors by calling them by their name. If I don't see you again, Reddit, I appreciate the water cooler conversation. Thank you all for listening, and as always, if you enjoyed, please subscribe, it means the world. Um, and yeah, I hope to catch you on the next one. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.